0: you are listening to a sermon from Lifegate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Joshua Jordan, who serves as the lead pastor at Lifegate Church. Find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. To the gospel according to Luke, chapter 4. Gospel according to Luke, chapter 4. We're continuing on in our series from the manger to the throne. We are picking up where we left off last week, Luke chapter 4. Today we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 30. Before we turn our attention to God's Word, let's pray together and ask the Lord to meet us through His Word. So would you join me in prayer? Father, Your Word is a gift to us. So Lord, we want to receive it with grateful hearts, and we want to benefit from Your Word. Lord, we we confess that your word is the bread of life. But often we neglect to come and to feast on your word. Lord, we know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And so therefore we we need what you are going to say to us today more than anything else. So Lord, would you open our minds to the Scriptures? Would you open our hearts to the Scriptures? To not just understand, but to receive. And, Lord, we pray that you would most of all show us Christ in all of his glory. Lord, I pray that you would do a supernatural work in our midst the preaching of your word, we would behold the glory of Jesus Christ. That's not something that we can make happen. No words of mine can accomplish that. Lord, the spirit of, of God must cause that to happen in us and among us. So Lord, would you now magnify your name in our midst. Lord, would you build up your church? Would you draw the lost to yourself? And may we leave here glorifying you in light of what we've seen and heard. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. I'm going to read to verse 30. Church, this is God's holy, inspired, and authoritative word. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about Him went out through all of the surrounding country. And He taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself, what we've heard you did at Capernaum. Do here in your hometown as well. And he said. Truly I say to you. No prophet, is, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you. There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heavens were shut up three years and six months. And a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up, And drove him out of the town. And brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built. So that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst. He went away. This morning we began... Justice, there's an echo in my mic. If we could see if we could get it taken away. Thank you, brother. This morning, we begin in Luke chapter 4, verse 14, a new section in Luke's gospel. Beginning here in verse 14 all the way through chapter 9, verse fifty. We are now going to travel alongside Jesus as His earthly ministry is now beginning as He makes His way through the region of Galilee. So here in verse 14, all the way through chapter 9, verse 50, we are going to go to Galilee with Jesus as He ministers. Now, why Jesus returned to Galilee to begin His earthly ministry is, is, is not as important to Luke as it was to Matthew. If you read Matthew's account, Matthew's more concerned with why did he go there. Luke is more concerned and focused with where Jesus went. And we're told that he went to his hometown of Nazareth. But take note of this. Jesus' appearance in the synagogue in Nazareth was not the first place in which he ministered publicly. We know that because we just heard in verse 23 that people are saying, well we hope you do for us which we've been hearing you've, doing, you've been doing in Capernaum. So this is not his first place to minister. Actually in the Gospel of Matthew and in the Gospel of Mark they actually find this particular story midpoint in the ministry of Jesus. So in Matthew's gospel account. In chapter 12, we hear about this story. And in Mark, he places it midpoint in the ministry of Jesus in chapter 6. But Luke places it here at the front end, not because chronologically it took place first, but because Luke obviously believed that what took place in Nazareth created a paradigm for the ministry and message of Jesus. If we're going to understand the ministry and message of Jesus, what took place in Nazareth would be the lens we need to look through. Let me read verses 14 through 16 again. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about Him went out through all of the surrounding country. And He taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. If we were to connect this story with last week, Jesus left the wilderness after his temptation, 40 days in the wilderness. He left the wilderness in weakness, but he returned to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit. He left in weakness, but he now begins his earthly ministry in power. The Spirit of God brought power upon Jesus. And once he arrived in the region of Galilee to begin his public ministry, notice what he does. He traveled around from synagogue to synagogue and he taught them and in his teaching, his Fame begins to spread, word gets out about his teaching and this man named Jesus. And at some point, we're not told when, he returned to his hometown and he went to the church where he grew up. He returns home and he goes to the synagogue, the church where he grew up. And Luke tells us what occurred on that day. Now, since we've already read the text, you know that Jesus did not have a pleasant experience at his home church in Nazareth. It went south quickly. So here's the question that I want us to consider this morning. Why? How could Jesus return there and the power of the Spirit? And at one point, they're praising him and encouraging him and saying, man, we're loving the things you're saying. And all of a sudden, they're trying to throw him off a cliff. Well, I believe those in the synagogue failed to do three things. Three things we can fail to do when encountering Jesus Christ. This text this morning is so helpful for us to consider as we look at this story. Because the mistakes they made, we can learn from. So instead of stating it negatively, I want to turn these three problems into positive things we should do. Here's what we should do every time we're coming to encounter Jesus Christ. Number one, we must have ears to hear about Jesus we must have ears to hear about Jesus. Look at verses 14 and 15. This is a summary statement. That's what Luke's doing here. He's just kind of collapsing a whole bunch of time and data into these two verses to tell us Jesus' ministry looked like this. He went from synagogue to synagogue, and this is what he does. And, and, and by looking at this summary statement, it highlights an important part of Jesus' ministry. Notice what Luke emphasizes. This is, this is surprising. He said he went throughout Galilee doing what? Teaching teaching the primary ministry of Jesus was one of proclamation in the synagogue of the Jews that was the primary emphasis of Jesus's ministry and we know that that's the case because we see a number of things in the text that point us to this fact that Luke is saying the teaching of Jesus is the primary emphasis. It's the primary focus of his ministry. He not only gives us a summary statement here in verses 14 and 15, but later on in a text we'll look at next week in verses 43 and 44, it's like Luke brackets these two statements, these two summary statements about Jesus, and he highlights that Jesus went into synagogues and taught. Listen to next week, Luke chapter 4, verses 43 through 44. He said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. Right out of the mouth of Jesus. He's healing people. He stops healing people to move on. Everybody says, what are you doing? That's not the purpose it came for. Here's the purpose that came. I came to teach. And then verse 44, and he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So you see what Luke just did? He bracketed these two verses together. And by bracketing this theme in this way, it, it gives a strong emphasis on the preaching ministry of Jesus. This is his primary purpose. Now, why is this significant? Why is this worthy of? our time to just slow down and think about the fact that Jesus' primary ministry wasn't healing. His primary reason. It doesn't say His fame spread because of all the things He was doing. Some of that's true. But it's mainly His teaching. Why is this so important? Well, I love what commentator James Edwards said. I think this is a good word for us. He says, Moderns are often more impressed by acts of compassion or ministries of presence than they are by the teaching and preaching. I I think that's true. And he goes on to say, In Luke's theology of the word, teaching and proclamation are the essential forms of divine revelation. A good deed, even a miracle, Can be misunderstood. And even if properly understood. May not evoke a commitment. Teaching. Involves a word. A word. Is capable of greater precision. And penetration. Than any other symbol. Of reality. And then he reminds us of this. God created all things. By the word. He brought Israel. Into existence. And sustained it through the prophetic word. And through Jesus Christ. Who is both the word of God. And who declares the word of God. God offers salvation. To all. Why is this important that we consider. That the primary ministry of Jesus. Was teaching. Because we might be tempted to undermine the power of the Word of God and the proclamation of the Word of God to do the work of God. We might be more fascinated with miracles or think, if we could only do these things or see these things, we would know God more, we would know Jesus more, we would be more convinced of His glory. And yet, There is not a more powerful means of revealing God to us than the word of God and the proclamation of God's word. And this emphasis just continues to be made throughout the rest of this story. This emphasis on proclamation is clearly seen in the event that took place in the synagogue of Nazareth. Go back to verses 16 through 20. I want to read these verses again. And Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And, was, and it was his custom. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. And recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll. And gave it back to the attendant. And sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Think about what just happened. Jesus announces that He is the long-awaited Messiah, the Spirit-anointed servant that Isaiah prophesied. That's that's what Jesus is doing here. He's quoting from Isaiah 61, which everyone in the synagogue would have known was was a promise that God would one day send the Spirit-anointed servant. Servant. And what would the spirit anointed servant do? Don't miss this. It's right in front of us, and we can get lost in, oh man, he's going he's to do these things for the poor, and he's going to give sight to the blind, and he's going to give liberty to the oppressed, and he's going to proclaim the Lord, year of the Lord's favor. But what's he going to do? Notice this. He's going to proclaim good news to the poor. He's going to proclaim Liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and set free those who are oppressed. He's going to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee. Jesus will accomplish his mission through proclamation. That's what Jesus was just announcing when he stood up in the synagogue, rolled open the scroll, found Isaiah 61, read this passage. He wasn't just saying, I've come to do these things. The way I'm going to do it is I'm going to proclaim. I'm going to make a proclamation. And we know that this is true because later on in verse 24, Jesus refers to himself as a prophet when he says, even a prophet is not accepted in his own town." Now, is Jesus more than a prophet? Absolutely. However, his ministry of proclamation was an essential part of his role as a Messiah. His teaching ministry can often be overlooked and therefore minimized. Now, there's one final observation from the text under this point that must be taken into consideration. And that's what we read in verses 20 and 21 it says that he rolled up the scroll gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing pay close attention to what Jesus has said to all of those in attendance in the synagogue according to verse 21. Notice what he said. Today, this has been fulfilled. Which raises the question, if this is not the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he had already been ministering in Capernaum, does that mean all of those other times he wasn't fulfilling that? Of course not. It's not what the word today means. He's not saying, for the first time, right now, this is happening. That's not how he's using the word today. So what does he mean by this word? Commentator Daryl Bach, I think, uses a helpful expression to define this word today. He calls it a timeless now. It's a timeless now. It's timeless in the sense of, he's not saying today, like there's an expiration date, like tomorrow, this isn't true. And he's not saying today, like, as, like today and today only, this happened. The point he's making is this, if you heed this message today then you too will experience the powerful ministry of Jesus Christ. See, we should read these words from Jesus, not merely as a statement, but as an invitation. That's what he was saying. He was saying, today, as you hear this, this could be true for you. Jesus was calling them to respond to his message with urgency. As they heard it, he was saying, don't you realize upon hearing this, if I'm going to set free the captives, help the poor, how am I going to do it? Through proclamation. So you better respond to what you're hearing. Because that's the means I'm going to use to do all of these things. It's good for us to Think about what's going on here in Nazareth because it serves us. It it reminds us how easy it is to listen to a proclamation from Scripture and yet fail to hear the message because we do not respond immediately. See, there is a danger for us all. There's a danger every Sunday, every single one of us sits in here under the preaching of the word. The preaching of the word isn't meant to give us information. It's meant to be responded to. And it's dangerous for us to sit here every week and God address us. And all we do is take notes. Every Sunday is a today moment. We're called to respond. And yet it's easy to listen, but not hear. And that's exactly what was happening in Nazareth. Notice their response in verse 22. And all spoke well of him. And marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? How shocking is it to read in verse 22 that they spoke well of him and they marveled at his gracious words it's 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 amazing that luke tells us that when we know how the story ends at some point they were going yeah right on jesus yeah we like that man those are good words this guy's good And then, before you know it, everyone it said, the entire congregation was filled with wrath. And they kicked him out, ran him out. He has to escape for his life, and they have one goal we're going to kill him. J.C. Ryle, we've quoted a number of times. He wrote a wonderful commentary on Luke, he was the Bishop of Liverpool in the 20th century, or in the 19th century. And he said this, There are thousands of persons in Christian churches in little better state of mind than the Lord's hearers at Nazareth. There are thousands who listen regularly to the preaching of the gospel and admire it while they listen. They do not dispute the truth of what they hear. They even feel a kind of intellectual pleasure in hearing a good and powerful sermon. But their religion never goes beyond this point. Their sermon hearing does not prevent them from living a life of thoughtlessness, worldliness, and sin. Now J.C. Watt- Ryle had a larger sphere of influence. So I'm not concerned with thousands of Christians in churches. I'm not the pastor of thousands of Christians. I am your pastor. And I want to encourage all of us to heed this warning. That we can listen without hearing. That we can listen, but not have ears to hear. Jesus said this in chapter 8, verse 18 of Luke's gospel. I preached from this single verse years ago, and in the coming weeks or months, Lord willing, we will come to this passage. Listen to this sober warning from the Savior. Take care then how you hear. Take care then how you hear. For the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. We, we must realize that what we are going to be hearing and seeing every week as we open up Luke's gospel demands a response. It's not just meant to fill us with knowledge. It's meant to call us every time. Today. 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 Hear this, believe this, be affected by this, live in light of this. So we must take care of how we hear. Now, how do you and I heed this warning? Well, that brings us to our second point. We must look at Jesus constantly. We must look at Jesus constantly. That's the second thing we take away from this passage. If you look at verses 18 and 19, without reading this passage again, as Jesus quotes Isaiah, listen listen to the emphasis. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me. He has sent me. And then I love this description in verse 21, or in verse 20, he rolls up the scroll, sits down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Now, when we consider all that Jesus declared, we come to realize that he's not simply the spirit anointed messenger from God, he is the content of the message. That's what sets him apart from John. Remember, John was a prophet sent by God to proclaim good news. But why are Jesus and John different? Because Jesus is not just a prophet with a message. Jesus is the point of the message. That's the difference. Listen to verse 18 and 19. Or look at verse 18 and 19. What's Jesus doing by quoting from Isaiah 61? He's recalling a promise. All the people of Israel would have held on to this promise and would have known this promise. One day, the Lord will send His Spirit-anointed servant. He's going to come. He is going to do this ministry that is going to be needed. He's going to set His people free. That's a promise. Think about what we just read in verses 20 and 21. Jesus... By rolling up the scroll, sitting down, and saying to everybody, this has just been fulfilled. You know what he's saying? I'm the fulfillment of that promise. So we have promise and fulfillment. And this is a, a major theme in Luke's gospel. If you remember back to the very first verse, Luke tells us why he wrote this gospel. And he tells us that he gave us an orderly account of all that had been accomplished that word is fulfillment and Luke 24 44 as Jesus sends out his disciples he he tells them that all the scriptures all the law of Moses all the prophets and the Psalms have been pointing to him and that he's fulfilled them so the bookends of Luke's gospel is about Jesus fulfilling all of the promises of scripture do you get the point Luke is making that he structures his gospel this way, he's saying all of Scripture points to the person of Jesus. Now, why is this important for us to remember? It's important for us to remember because when we come to Scripture, we're not simply hearing truth with our ears. And we're not simply seeing truth with our eyes. We are being beckoned to look at Jesus who came to rescue us i love it that luke tells us that once jesus rolled up the scroll and sat down all eyes were on him he meant to do that it wasn't just that that happened i believe he could have stood stood up read the passage Explained it. Why did he do what he did? It was a dramatic demonstration. He reads, rolls it up, sits down, and everybody's looking at him. And his point is that's right. I wanted to get your attention on on me because I'm the point of all that you've just heard. All that you're hearing is not just new information. It's not just doctrinal truth. I am the point of all of the Scriptures. and We must not forget this. That when we read the Bible, we, we, we are not just coming across doctrine. Scripture is not just doctrinal. It's personal. Now a burden that I have for us as a congregation is not so much that we would ignore Jesus or miss Jesus as we read our Bibles. I think over the years, with the way we have sought to explain the Scriptures, I think you would know that all of the Scriptures point to Jesus. So I'm not concerned, I don't have a burden that maybe we're coming to the Scriptures and just taking away moralistic truths or just doctrinal truths and missing Jesus. A greater concern is how are we looking at Jesus? How are we looking at him? Are we looking to Jesus for salvation? Or are we looking at Jesus as our salvation? You say, Josh, is that just semantics? No. Are we looking to Jesus for salvation? Are looking at At Jesus as our salvation. Think about the congregation in Nazareth. What were they doing? They were looking to Jesus for something. And they struggled to take in who he really was. They wanted him for what he gave. Miracles. Teaching. He's going to drive out Rome. He's going to deliver them from the oppressor. They wanted something from him. And when he reveals who he really is. They want to kill him. See, we too must be careful not to come to Jesus just to receive gospel benefits. We can come and to Jesus to just receive gospel benefits all the while treating Jesus as a means to an end instead of the end in itself. I quoted this back when we were in the book of Galatians from Sinclair Ferguson, he said the following, the benefits of the gospel, justification, reconciliation, redemption, adoption, etc. The benefits of the gospel must not be separated from Christ, who is himself the gospel. The benefits of the gospel are in Christ. They do not exist apart from him. They are ours only in him. They cannot be abstracted from him as if we ourselves could possess them independently of him. How often do we think of our salvation as just something Jesus gives? Jesus doesn't give salvation. Jesus is salvation. There is no salvation apart from him. So how then do we know whether we are looking to Jesus for something or we are looking at Jesus. Here's a diagnostic question to ask yourself. Are you consistently growing in your affection for Christ when you read or hear Scripture? When you and I are reading Scripture, are hearing Scripture, is my affection for Christ, for who He is, is growing Am I just reading and getting a pick-me-up? Am I reading it and maybe I'm seeing truths about justification and I'm glad I'm justified? See, here's a good diagnostic question to know whether you're looking to Jesus for something or at Jesus. Is your affection growing for Him? Because if Jesus isn't the means to something but is the end, then the goal and the fruit of us rightly reading Scripture is to say, you're so amazing. My love for you just keeps growing. Every time I think I have just seen it all, I realize who you are. Now, one final thing to take away from this passage Before us this morning. Here's the third and final thing we must do. If we're going to encounter Jesus. We must follow Jesus with our lives. We must follow Jesus. With our lives. I want to begin reading in verse 23 through the end. And then I'm just going to briefly comment on what's taking place here. After they ask this question. Is not this Joseph's son. We read this, and he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months. And a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Now, a lot could be said about what just took place and all that is being said by by Jesus here. I just want to give a short and simple explanation. Beginning in verse 22, Jesus, or beginning in verse 23, Jesus now responds to this question, this inquiry. Wait, guys, is that not Joseph's son? Is that not the guy we grew, grew up with? And now all of a sudden, he goes away and comes back and stands up in the synagogue and says, he's the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. And what does Jesus do? He fires back with two expressions. The first one, He's basically saying, I know what you're thinking. Jesus, can you just show us a sign? Can you do what you've been doing in Capernaum? That's what it means by physician, heal yourself. We use it differently in our culture. He's basically saying, hey, can you do something to show us that you really are who you say you are? And then he says this proverb. A prophet is never accepted. It is in his own hometown. And then he follows those two statements up by giving two Old Testament examples of Gentiles. Of two Gentiles, a poor widow and a Syrian general in power. And both of them, what do they have in common? They humbled themselves before the Lord at a time when no other Israelite did it. By bringing up this story, these two stories from the Old Testament, during the time of the prophet Jesus, was making it clear what his mission was. His mission was bigger than just reaching Israel. He was reaching the Gentiles. Gentiles would be recipients of his ministry and his salvation just as much as Jews. But most importantly, Jesus made it clear that the people in the congregation that day were like the people living during the time of Elijah and Elisha. Now, can you see why they got mad? You know how many years went by in the time of Elijah and Elisha and not one of them ever cried out to the Lord and the only two people who did were Gentiles? Jesus is basically saying, you're just like them. Following in their steps. And We're told that they were filled with wrath and that they tried to expel Jesus. That's the word. It's the same word we're going to see later on when Jesus cast out demons. They try to expel him. And what do they try to do? Throw him off a cliff. What does Jesus do in Luke chapter 8? He expels demons into pigs and throws those pigs off the cliff. They're basically treating Jesus as if he's unclean. Ridding themselves of him. Instead of following him, they chose to remove him and listen once again how the passage ends. These are haunting words. But passing through their midst, he went away. The one that they could have responded to is leaving their midst. So, how could this happen? How could they get to this point? Jesus would say, what he does, and, and they move from praising him to treating him as if he is unclean. Well, two things show up at the end of this passage that makes it very clear why they responded this way. Number one, familiarity. I'm sure you've heard the expression, familiarity breeds contempt. The folks in Jesus' home church had, familiar, had such familiarity with Jesus, but they didn't have a true knowledge of him. And I think growing up with Jesus became a challenge for them to see him for who he really is. And listen, I think the same can be true for today. For those of us who've grown up hearing about Jesus, we too can begin to have familiarity with him and it can cause us to lose our wonder if we're not careful. Now listen, it is a wonderful thing if you've grown up hearing about Jesus. And you've had familiarity with Jesus. That in and of itself is not a bad thing. But it is something to be aware of. Familiarity with Jesus can begin to make him lose his wonder. He's just another Bible story. Oh, I've heard that story before. But we can lose our wonder. But there's a second thing. Second thing that's taking place here in this passage, not only was there familiarity, but offense. Why were these people filled with wrath? Once again, it's amazing that these folks could at one point speak so highly of Jesus, and then just a few minutes later treat him with such contempt. How could they do this? What happened? Easy, he offended them. He offended them. They refused to follow him because he offended them. They didn't like something he said. And instead of responding humbly and patiently, they said, we would rather kill you than keep responding and listening to you and having any more dialogue with you. We'd rather drive you out of our town and over a cliff Because you've made us mad. Public service announcement. As we make our way through the gospel of Luke. It is a good chance Jesus is going to say things that are going to offend you. And make you uncomfortable. I can almost guarantee. He will be an equal opportunity offender. When that occurs, I would encourage you to return, return to this story here in Luke 4 to recall the response of this congregation at Nazareth. Because when we read this story, we can see how irrational and reactionary their, their response is to Jesus. But here's what we can forget. Can't we do the same? This, this passage is going to serve us later on. If we, we want to be, well, I can't believe Jesus would say that. Well, I don't think Jesus is like that. Well, I don't like a God like that. Go back to Luke 4. See how irrational and reactionary these people are. And let it be a mirror. To say, okay, maybe maybe I ought to slow down before I make judgments of God, of Christ, and the Scriptures. Do me some good to be humble and patient and careful. Now, how do we avoid these obstacles? If we're tempted to lose our wonder of Jesus because of familiarity or because of offense. How, how can we overcome these obstacles? How can we love Jesus the way He's meant to be loved, as He appears in the Scriptures? We're not just coming to Him for something; we're coming to Him. How can we do that? Can I share in closing the secret to this. From this book on why people reject Jesus. And why others follow him with their whole life. You're going to see it time and time and time again. In every story. Some are going to come to him. Others are going to reject him. And there's always one simple reason. Only one. The poor, the needy, the hungry, the oppressed, and the broken come to Jesus. And guess what? That's all of us. But only some people see it. Those who don't think they're poor or needy or hungry or enslaved or without hope, they're going to say, oh yeah, he's a good moral teacher. I like some things, don't like other things. Like the miracle part, love. I mean, he seemed like a really great guy, loved people well. But it's only when we see our need for him that we will come to him. Think about these words In verses 18 and 19, Jesus said, here's my ministry. I'm coming for the poor, the blind, the enslaved, and the oppressed. See, why would many people throughout this gospel come to Jesus, see him, hear him, watch him do miracles and say, no, thank you. Because they thought they were. They weren't desperate. They really weren't the chief of sinners. They really aren't oppressed. I'm quite good, thank you. And that will keep us from coming to Jesus. Luke 7, verses 41 through 47. I want to just read these words in closing. What does this look like? What does it look like to have this kind of understanding of ourselves so that we can then see Jesus rightly? Listen to this, these words Jesus speaks after having this exchange with a Pharisee who's upset that a sinful woman is ministering to Jesus. And he says this beginning in verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which one of them will love him more? Simon the Pharisee answered, The one, I suppose, from whom he canceled the larger debt. And He said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house... And you gave me no water for my feet. but She has wet my feet with her tears. And wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in. She has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. But she has anointed me. Anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you. Her sins which are many. Are forgiven. For she. Loved much. But he who is forgiven little. Loves. Little. Friends. As we close this morning. Let us. Take in those. Words. That if we are not. Fully aware of how. Needy we are of the Lord. And his forgiveness. We will never. We will never come to him. As we ought. We will be easily offended by him, way too familiar with him, and at best we will treat him as a means to an end. But when we are aware of who we really are, we will be amazed at who he is. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for inspiring this story and preserving this story in Holy Scripture for our benefit. I pray now that you would use this preaching moment and the work and the words that have been said to cause us all now to, to fill the weight of the word today. That today, Lord, we would respond. Whatever way that is, Lord, we would not just hear and walk away, but we would respond to the gracious Savior who calls us to Himself. Lord, may we come to You today and benefit from knowing You and being loved by You. Lord, would You Use these truths to not only serve us today, but to protect us in the days ahead. Write these truths on our heart, Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.